About three or four weeks ago, Charlie told me that uh, he wanted to do that song as a kind of a lead-in to the message we were going to be doing this week. And when I listened to it, I said, that is just the perfect lead-in to what we're doing this week. We have been in a series that we call The Squeeze, and we've been talking about the pressures of life that kind of squeeze in on us and cause tension and difficulties. And how do we deal with that? How do we respond in those situations? And today we come to the question of what do you do when those pressures squeeze so hard that they crush you and you fall on black days or you hit the wall and you just can't go on. This concept of hitting the wall comes from the the world of endurance athletics and uh, from marathons and long-distance bike rides and those sorts of things. And the idea is that when your glycogen stores have been depleted from your body, your legs and the rest of your body just basically shut down and they say, thanks very much, it's been a nice day and we'll see you tomorrow. And, and you know, that's kind of the way it works. And that happened to me actually um, a, a year or so after I graduated from college. A couple of my friends and I, we, were, we decided to participate in a bicycle rally kind of thing. It wasn't really a race, uh, and it wasn't for charity. It was just a fun thing, and we started off in the Princeton area, and we rode out to the shore, and we rode back, and it was a 100-mile bike ride, and we were doing great in the morning. We actually did the first 50 miles in probably two and a half, maybe three hours, and we were really cruising, doing really well. We decided to stop for lunch, and I ate a sandwich, you know, had something to drink, and I had a banana because, you know, you need the potassium and stuff so that you don't hit the wall and, you know, etc. And we decided we'll take a little bit easier in the afternoon. So we're going a little bit slower and just enjoying things. And as we're coming to the top of this one hill at about mile 80, my legs just said, that's it, we're done for the day, we'll see you tomorrow. And my brain said, no, we got to keep going. And the leg said, fine, you can keep going, but we're staying right where we are. You know? and, and they wouldn't work. And it took me to go the next two or three miles. About, I felt like it took me about as long as it took to go the first 50 miles because the legs just wouldn't work. And so uh, we see as we're coming up on the horizon, there's this convenience store. And I'm like, I hope they've got something with sugar there. So we get in and open the fridge. And there you see this half gallon of sugared lemonade iced tea kind of mix there. And I just downed that whole thing. It must have taken all of 30 seconds. And my legs said, thank you very much. I guess we'll continue on for the rest of the bike ride. And the next 17 miles were great. But hitting that physical wall just gave me a new perspective on life uh, in that way. Fast forward about 30 years to this past summer, long about the beginning of July, and I hit a very different kind of a wall. Woke up one morning, had breakfast, sat down at the computer to answer some emails, And I just couldn't do it. I just broke down crying. I'm just looking, staring at the screen. And I'm saying over and over and over again, I just can't do it anymore. I just can't do it anymore. I can't go on. I can't do it anymore. And it was not just answering the emails, which I don't even know what it was about. It's probably something, you know, relatively innocuous, but... I couldn't do anything. 
I couldn't think straight, couldn't respond to emails, couldn't make simple decisions. You know, I'm a guy that eats pretty much the same thing for breakfast every day. And for a few days there, I couldn't even figure out what to eat for breakfast. And I had the same thing every day, you know. It was that difficult. Getting out of bed was as hard as riding 100 miles when you've got no glycogen in your body. You know, it was just an impossible situation. I had no clue what was happening to me. There was this kind of an overwhelming fear, not focused on any one particular thing, but kind of a fear of everything and nothing all kind of mixed in at the same time. It was just as the song was saying, it was, it was black days, you know. And Anne, my wife, was just awesome. She would sit by, you know, she would sit by me and just give me a hug or rub my back, pray with me, pray for me, read me passages of Scripture, especially some of the Psalms, you know, just, just love on me during that period of time. And Chris was great, gave me four or five, about five weeks off from my job responsibilities. I talked to a number of different friends who were able to give me some advice and some input, including the pastor of that church in Oklahoma that we're partnering with to help with the tornado relief. Over the years, he's become a really good friend, and I just called him and, and, you know, poured out my heart to him, and he was able to give me some perspective. Went to the doctor to see if there was anything physical going on. He says, well, you've got a vitamin D deficiency, which I guess means I wasn't in the sun enough, but I'm not sure that had anything to do with the, with the, the hitting the wall in that way. You know, so there wasn't much physical going on, but there was a lot going on inside. And people advised me, you know, just slow down a little bit, get some extra rest, try to change your circumstances, maybe change some of your responsibilities at work. Focus on doing what only you can do. And Chris talked about that last week and the importance of that. And all those things, all that advice was really helpful to me. But it wasn't all that I needed. And I spent some time reading, I spent some time praying, I spent some time listening to messages from some folks who really had some good insights into some of these things. And through that, through my own time in the Bible, I really learned, or maybe would say relearned, about a half a dozen different lessons. about Some about what led up to my hitting the wall, and many about how I could kind of come out of that period of, of dark days, so to speak. And I want to share a couple of those with you this morning. But I do that mindful of the fact that we're dealing with a pretty big subject when you're talking about hitting the wall or for some of you who are living on a day-to-day basis with an ongoing situation of depression. That's a pretty big topic. And I'm mindful of the fact that I'm giving you a very, very small slice of something that was helpful to me. And my hope is that it'll be helpful to you if you're going through a difficult time now or you do in the future or you've got somebody who you love who's going through a difficult time. But I'm mindful that it's only a small piece of a much bigger picture. And if I, if I can ever be of help to any of you, let me know. I'd love to talk to you. We've got a really great counseling service here as well. can point you in their direction and they can be helpful also. But I want to share with you just a couple of the lessons that I learned uh, during this time with the hope that it'll be helpful to you. And the lessons are going to come out of a passage in one of the Gospels. And if you're not like a, a Bible person, 
you may or may not be familiar with the fact that at the beginning of the New Testament, there are four gospels or biographies, short biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew and John were followers of Jesus. They were disciples of his. They were guys that hung out with him pretty much every day for a period of about three and a half years. And so they wrote based on their experiences with Jesus. Mark and Luke talked to people who were with Jesus on a daily basis and learned and wrote down their biographies in that way. So you've got four uh, very different perspectives about the life of Jesus. And the one we're going to be looking at today was written by Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, one of his followers. And the section we're going to look at follows right on the heels of a passage in which Jesus had just finished feeding about 5,000 people by using only five loaves of bread and two fish. He had been speaking to them for probably much of the day. They're tired, they're hungry, and he fed them miraculously using only five loaves and two fish. And we want to pick up the action right after that in verse 22 of Matthew 14. So immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. That's the other side of the lake of the Sea of Galilee. That's, they were on the shore there. To the other, go ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And uh, later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a, a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And I want to just point out something here that struck me as I was reading through this passage recently. And that is, at the end of a long and busy day, Jesus sends his disciples across the lake in a boat, and he stays behind, goes up on the, to the mountainside, and prays. It's, he's been busy, he's tired, and he needs to focus on his relationship with his heavenly father. So he took time out just to pray. And if you read through the Gospels, you see him doing that again and again and again. Sometimes he gets up early in the morning before he knows what's going to be a very busy day is coming up, and he prays. Other times he'll do that in the middle of the day. Times like this he'll do it at the end of the day. Sometimes he stays up all night and prays because he knows how vital that relationship with his father is, and he wants to keep that, keep that close relationship. So he sends the disciples out in the boat, and several of these guys, probably three or four of them, were fishermen. And so they'd been on this lake hundreds and hundreds of times. That's where they made their living. They probably sailed across it many dozens of times. So they're used to this, and they're rowing across the lake, and they probably started, you know, six, seven, eight o'clock at night, and they've been going. It's now about three or four in the morning, so they've been going for at least six hours, and they've only made it about three miles because there's this storm that's going on at that time. So they're tired, they're sore, they're probably a little bit frustrated, maybe a little bit afraid, you know, because they respect the, the sea. If you're, if, if you're a person who grew up near the shore, you know the power of the ocean. And, or of, in this case, it's a, it's a very large lake that can bring up some very dangerous storms. So it's a challenging situation for them. So we continue on, verse 25. Shortly before dawn, about three or four in the morning, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. 
take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And that phrase that's highlighted there, it is I, could even more literally be translated, I am. Because I am, he says, you don't need to be afraid. And these were good Jewish boys, so they would know that that phrase, I am, comes from the Old Testament book of Exodus. And there's a scene where Moses is standing before God at this burning bush. And God has just said to him, Moses, I want you to lead my people out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt. And if you've ever either read the book of Exodus or maybe you've seen the the movie, The Prince of Egypt, you may be familiar with the scene. And so God says to Moses, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses says to God, okay, so when I go to them and do this, who do I say sent me? And God says, I am who I am. I am. I am the eternal present. Because I am, Jesus says, you don't need to be afraid. God is the one constant in the universe who is unaffected by all the storms, by all the difficulties, by all the problems, by all the change in the world. God is always And he says, because I am, you don't need to be afraid. And if we belong to Jesus, we don't need to be afraid because he is and he's always with us. And that was one of the things that I needed to remind myself of, that God is and that he loves me and that he is always there. He will always be there for me, even in the midst of recovering from hitting the wall. Verse 28, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. I gotta love this guy, Peter. Peter is one of these open mouth, insert foot, and then think about what I just did kind of guys. So Jesus is walking on the water. Peter and the other guys, they're scared to death. They realize it's Jesus. And Peter says, hey, if it's really you, Jesus, let me come walk on the water with you. You know, what's he, what's he thinking, right? You know, it's, it's kind of a, a, a funky situation there. And Jesus says to him, come. Then Peter got, out, got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and starts coming to Jesus. He's kind of, hey, look at me, guys. I'm walking on the water, going to Jesus. This is really cool. And it was because of who Jesus was. Peter could do the impossible, not because of anything that was inherent in Peter, but because of something that was inherent in Jesus, the God who created the universe, who created that lake who created water could enable Peter to walk on the water just as much as Jesus could. But, and here's the turning point in the story, verse 30. But when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cries out, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Help me. Save me. When he saw the wind, when he saw the waves, when he saw the storm, when he took his eyes off of Jesus, he started to sink. When he's looking at Jesus, he could do the impossible. He could walk on the water. He could do it, not because of who he was, but because of who Jesus was. As long as he kept his focus on Jesus, he was fine. But as soon as he started to look at the circumstances around him, that's when he began to sink. You ever try to walk on water? Works okay when it's frozen. 
but when it's not frozen, it doesn't work too well. How many of you, and I won't ask you to raise your hand because some of you would be embarrassed to admit this, but I will admit it. How many of you have ever tried to walk on water by like running out along the diving board and trying to go really fast and you see how many steps you can take on the water before you, before you start sinking, you know? We used to do that when we were kids. Ah, I can get three or four steps. No, you don't even get one step, right? But it was fun and you try to do it and you end up flopping on your face and you have a good time with your, with your friends. We are not made to be able to walk on water. Look at this though. This one really jumps out at me here. He's afraid and beginning to sink, he cries out, Lord, save me. Beginning to sink? You don't begin to sink. You just sink. If you step out onto the water, no matter how fast you are going, you immediately go down. What was going on here was Jesus was showing Peter some grace. He was letting him down slowly to give him the opportunity to cry out for help. In a normal situation, he's right under the water immediately. But Jesus led him down slowly, which was why Matthew could say he was beginning to sink when he cried out. And you know, as I look back on hitting the wall last summer, God gave me a similar warning. He gave me the opportunity to sink slowly so that I could cry out to him, but I missed it. And I didn't see it. And if I had, I wonder if I could have avoided hitting the wall. And some of those warning signs I wanted to share with you because maybe they'll help you and hopefully they'll help me in the future if the situation ever arises again. One of those was just an increasing frustration with things that would not normally frustrate me, petty little things, things that wouldn't normally bother me, just frustrated me to no end. And other things like that would get me angry. I'd snap at things that I wouldn't normally snap at. You know, I would get angry at stuff that I wouldn't normally get angry at. And I realized it was because I was beginning to sink, but I just didn't realize it. Another one was withdrawal. You know, taking an extra hour or two sleeping. Not because I'm tired, but because I just want to stay in that cocoon and not face the world and, you know, in the storms and all that stuff that's going on around you. Mind-numbing. You know, watching uh, one of those sort of grade B movies on cable that has, like, no discernible plot and the acting is worse than if I did it you know, which would be pretty bad. Uh, You know, just wasting time in those sorts of things or reading the same news story on five different news sites because maybe one of them is going to have something slightly different when you know really it's not, but it's a great way to waste time and just numb your mind. Difficulty making decisions. You know, as I mentioned before, I didn't have difficulty deciding what to have for breakfast until the very end, but just decisions that shouldn't have been difficult and wouldn't have been difficult under normal circumstances were difficult and, and became more and more impossible. Dropping balls, things that I would normally be able to do at work or at home, making promises that I fully intended to keep but ended up not keeping them for no discernible reason. I mean, all those things should have been warning signs to me. And, and really, probably one of the biggest ones was the developing of, a, of a, what started off as a low-grade fear, not focused on any one particular thing, but just beginning to grow more and more and more until you know, that morning it just became overwhelming. And when I, I said, I can't do it anymore, and, and Anne says, what's wrong? And part of me just said, I'm just afraid. And she said, of what? And I, I don't know. You know. And it just became an overwhelming situation until finally I just cry out, I just can't do it anymore. I've hit the wall. 
I'm shutting down. It's over. And I, I don't know where to go, who to turn to, or, or, or what to do. And I hope and I pray for you and, and for me in the future, if you ever start seeing those warning signs or, or anything like that, stop and ask yourself, hey, is that pressure getting to be too much? Is it about to crush me? And if it is, cry out for help, both to God, but also to, to loved ones and, and others around you who can help you with the situation. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. You're the only one who can save me. And that was the smartest thing that Peter did at that point. And immediately... Jesus reached out his hand and caught him and he said, you have little faith, why did you doubt? You have little faith, why did you doubt? And I like that because Jesus doesn't say to Peter, you have no faith. He says, you have little faith. Peter had faith. He stepped out of the boat, trusting Jesus and started walking on the water. But when he got distracted from Jesus and started looking at the storm around him, his faith wavered and he began to sink because he took his eyes off of Jesus. And the same was true for me. I didn't lose my faith. I had faith. I absolutely believed everything then that I believe now. But I was taking my eyes off Jesus some. I'm looking at some of the circumstances around me. I'm losing my focus. I begin to be more concerned with some of the challenges I was facing than with the God who is more than capable of meeting those challenges, who is more than capable of helping me through them. He didn't promise to take me out of those challenges. Sometimes he does. But he promises to go through them with me, to be with me, to hold on to me, to never let go of me, to love me, to show me compassion, to give me the strength to make it through but sometimes I took my eyes off of him. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When we take our eyes off of Jesus and start looking at our circumstances, we're gonna begin to sink. So then verse 32, the story concludes. When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Of course it did, because we're talking about the God of the universe. He can, he can turn off the wind when he wants. The wind dies down, then those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the Son of God. When you read about the miracles that Jesus did, whether it's, in this particular case, walking on the water and helping Peter to walk on the water, or the one that occurred just before that, feeding 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, or one that occurred a couple years earlier where he's turning water into wine, or when he raises Lazarus from the dead and go on and on and on. When you're reading the miracles that Jesus did, always take a look for what's said at the end because most of the time, the crowd or the disciples or whoever was witnessing what was going on has some response, has some reaction. In this case, they worship Jesus saying, truly, you are the son of God. And that's the main point. Jesus is the son of God whom we should worship, whom we should look to to meet our needs because he's able to meet our needs and he cares enough about us to meet our needs. He promises to be with us and he will be with us. He says, because I am, you don't need to be afraid. 
he is bigger and more powerful than our, than our circumstances. And he cares more about us than we could ever imagine. So I want to kind of draw two lessons, as I, two lessons from this passage. As I said, there's a whole bunch of things I learned. I'd love to share more with you, after, you know, sometime if you want to talk. Let me know and I'd love to share more of the things that I learned. But two of the lessons I learned I want to share with you today. And the first one is keep looking to Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus. No matter what's going on around you, just keep looking to Jesus. And I'm not saying ignore your circumstances. You live in your circumstances. You can't ignore them. Peter couldn't and shouldn't ignore the fact that he's out in the middle of a lake in the middle of a storm but he needed to keep his focus on Jesus. And that's what we need to do as well. And I don't know exactly what's going on in any particular individual's life today, but I got a pretty good idea because some of it goes on in my life and I talk to enough of you that I have a pretty good idea of what's going on in many people's lives. You've got job pressures. You know, maybe you've got a boss who is impossible to please. She sets the bar here and you meet it. And then she says, no, the bar wasn't there. It was up here. And then you meet that and she raises it again or she changes the goal. She changes the target. And there's nothing you can do. You can't please her. And you fear for your job and, you know, et cetera. And all that goes with it. That's a real pressure that people face on a day-to-day basis. Or your family situation, your relationship with your kid. You know, one of your children is broken you're just, you know, you're at each other constantly. Or, or you and your spouse, your marriage, if you call it that, is really more like a cold war. You know, you're two people who are living under the same roof for convenience as opposed to because you really love each other. And that's a pressure. And if you don't watch out, pressures like that can crush you. Health, you know, your health is turning or the health of a loved one. Financial pressures, you've been out of work for a week or a month or a year or longer and the bills are piling up. That stuff can crush us. And God doesn't tell us to ignore it. We have to deal with the realities of our everyday life, but we can't do it on our own and we need to keep our focus on him. Otherwise, it is gonna crush us and we are gonna hit that wall. And we're we're going to find ourselves in difficult straits. For me, I knew all that, but I needed to remind myself of it. I needed to remember it yet again. And so what I started doing was, you know, I would read the Bible regularly every day, but I started reading it, asking myself a specific question every morning. As I'm reading this, I wanted to be able to take something away from it that I could meditate on, that I could reflect on throughout the day. And so I started doing that more and more and more. And then I consciously try, still do, to remind myself in the middle of all of the circumstances that I'm dealing with, I've got to stop and refocus on Jesus. And maybe I've read something about his faithfulness. And so I just remind myself and pray about that several times throughout the day or his power or his grace or his love or his forgiveness or something that he's done or, you know, all sorts of things like that. That's something that's helpful to me and maybe it'll be helpful to you. Or if you're, maybe if you're just starting off in your faith journey and you don't know a whole lot about God, you don't consider yourself really a Bible person yet or, or someone who really knows God well, start off by reading one of the Gospels. Read the Gospel of Matthew and just ask yourself, who is this Jesus? What's he like? Get to know him better. See where he's compassionate. See how he treats those who are hurting. 
See what makes him upset. See what gets him excited. Just find out who he is and what he's like and then chew on that throughout the day and ask him to help you to focus on him more than on your circumstances. Or take the Psalms. The Psalms were written by a number of different men, all of whom were living in real-life situations, and so many of the Psalms were written in response to pressures that they were facing or triumphs that they had experienced. And they're praising God for the triumphs, and they're saying to him, Lord, save me, in the middle of the difficulties that they're facing. So reading the Psalms can be really helpful in that way. Whatever you do, make an intentional effort to focus on God throughout the day. The other lesson I want to share with you is what I might call the illusion of independence. The illusion of independence. Ever since the Garden of Eden, we human beings have got it into our minds that we are independent beings, that we are autonomous, that we are self-sufficient, that we can live life on our own apart from God. Really? Ask the person who is battling depression and can't get out of bed in the morning. It is as difficult for her to get out of the bed as it would be for any of us to walk on water. God's given me some gifts and talents and abilities and energy, but those are all gifts from God. They're not my own. I didn't create them. I didn't earn them. They're gifts that God gave me, and he wants me to exercise those depending on him, not trying to do it on my own. And sometimes he gives me the opportunity, he reminds me that, no, you try to do it on your own, and it's just not going to work. I am no more capable of handling my daily circumstances than I am of walking on the water. And that was a lesson I needed to be reminded of yet again and again and again. And I recently came across this great quote that kind of pulls that together. Often God will not act until we realize that we cannot make it on our own. God will not do what God desires to do until we come to see that we desperately need his intervention in our lives. As long as we erroneously think that we can handle life situations on our own, God simply stands aside. Divine resources do not break into our situation until we admit that life has grown too immense for our own abilities. When I admitted that life had grown too immense for my own abilities, God's divine resources broke in big time, and I'm able to stand up here this morning, which I could not have done about a year ago. And it's as a result of God's divine resources breaking into my life. And I need to remind myself every day that apart from his divine resources, apart from him, I can do nothing. I might as well be trying to walk on water as doing anything else because I need him every moment of every day. God did not intend for us to be independent. He intended for us to look to him to meet our needs. And when we do, he immediately says, absolutely. And if we're down, he picks us up, dusts us off, gives us a hug, sets us on our feet, and walks alongside of us. And if we're doing all right, he's, he's excited with us. Wherever we are, we need to keep looking to him and realize that we are not independent of him. The band's going to come back up now, and Julie is going to sing 
a song that really pulls together some of the things from this passage. It's just a perfect ending uh, to what we've been talking about this morning. Our God is a God who transcends the circumstances of our daily lives. He calms our fears. He listens to our cry. He dries our tears. He answers our prayers. He strengthens us when we're weak. And he loves us enough that he was willing to sacrifice his son to give his son to die so that we could live, so that we could spend eternity in his presence. Our God is a God whom we can trust because he's, he is faithful and who says to us, because I am, you don't need to be afraid. <laughs>